I'm filmmaker Sam Katz. I'm Nancy Karabjanian, director of the Center for Political Communication at the University of Delaware. And you're listening to the Travel, Travel Mug, Mug Podcast, Podcast with, with Matt O'Donnell. Hello, everyone. I'm Matt O'Donnell, and this Travel Mug Podcast is about the reset and features two people who experienced one and what they did about it. What is the reset? The Reset is a life-changing event that sets you on a completely new path. Getting fired from a job you have held for decades. Being required to learn a completely new skill. A divorce. An accident. A diagnosis. A loss. A move to a different country. What do you do next to reset? Listen to this. Quote, New chapters are usually unexpected, but unexpectedly rewarding. You will hear from the woman who told me that in a moment. First up, Philadelphian Sam Katz. He ran for Pennsylvania governor once, Philadelphia mayor three times. He only came close to winning once. His last campaign was in 2003. Since then, Sam has reset. How? In the travel mug. Here we go. I'm here with Sam Katz, who is a panelist on Inside Story, of which I host every now and then. Sam, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Matt. It's good to be here. The last time I saw you, it was right before a taping of Inside Story, and you looked at me with weary eyes and you said, Matt, I have never been busier in my life. I have never been busier in my life. You are so pulled in multiple directions, and in my case, in a project in Pittsburgh, a film about the future of classical music and China, a documentary on the bankruptcy of Detroit, and a portfolio of projects in Philadelphia, I have never worked harder in my life. I want to go back to the year 2003. That's too too bad. (laughs) (laughs) You agreed to this. uh, Four years before that year, you had came closer than any other Republican in more than 50 years to winning the Philadelphia mayor's office. On the night of November 5th, 2003, you learned that you fell even shorter in your rematch with Mayor John Street. He went on to win re-election. When you knew it was over that night, what happened? Well, I knew it was over about 30 days before that night. <laughs> now, actually, if you recall, uh, an electronic listening device was discovered in uh, the mayor's office in a panel in the ceiling above his desk. And at, at the 24 to 48-hour period after that, I sure, surely thought I was going to win. Uh, his campaign and the National Democratic Party did a great job of turning uh, the FBI's installation of that listening device into the son of Watergate and republicanized me, even though I was running as a Republican, I had largely avoided being typecast that way. And over the next 10 days, I went from being up six in our polls to down 14 without moving my lips. So it was pretty clear that we weren't going to win. But that night, the, st- the, the, sh- the stunning nature of the, the extent of the defeat uh, after four elections, uh, was really cathartic. It was like, okay, the public is not buying your act. You are not going to be the mayor of Philadelphia. And when you say four elections, you ran for governor. You well, ran for uh, mayor in 91. 91, and 99, and 03 and for mayor, and 94 for governor. And uh, the race for governor was a primary election in which I had no real state exposure. And frankly, uh, I did very well in southeastern Pennsylvania, but Pennsylvania is bigger than the five counties (laughs) of southeastern Pennsylvania. And I lost to Tom Ridge. 
But in, in uh, 03, I really thought we were correcting all of the mistakes of the prior campaigns, and it turned out not to matter. How did you accept that? Uh, privately, um, with a great deal of difficulty. Uh, publicly, I think as gracefully as I could. Um, I, I always felt that uh, this was the only job I ever really wanted. And I had trained myself to become the mayor of Philadelphia. I spent 24 years in municipal finance. I thought that was really important. I knew a fair amount about real estate and development and, and the, the real estate process. I certainly understood government having been an advisor to state and local governments, and I knew Philadelphia's political landscape. Um, in retrospect, I kind of feel that many of the things that I wanted to accomplish for the city would have had a hard time acquiring nine votes in city council. And um, in, in some ways, it might have been a very frustrating experience for everyone. But um, one thing about running and never winning is that everybody in town tells me they voted for me. So <laughs> I always get a very good – and 15 years later, we are now 15 years since the last election, I still hear people talking about uh, me as a candidate. And I haven't been a candidate in a long time. So it was a very um, – the second election against Mayor Street was a very bitter and, and tough election. Uh, the unions were very fired up, particularly uh, the electricians' union. Uh, there was a lot of consternation and protection of turf uh, by the people who had supported Mayor Street. And uh, they knew, because of the closeness of the 99 election, that this was going to be a tough campaign. And it was a tough campaign until the bug and then the argument that this was a Republican dirty trick. You touched on it a little bit. I'm sure you've gone over this in your head millions of times. What would a Mayor Sam Katz administration have looked like, done? Would it have been successful? Well, I think any mayoral uh, administration has its, w its wins and its losses, its failures and its successes, and I doubt seriously that a, a Katz administration would have been different. What I find missing in Philadelphia, and I've noticed this over a long period of time, having spent many, many years traveling around the country and working with cities and other parts of, this, of the United States, we don't have a vision for the future of the city. And that lack of vision became ever more clear to me spending the last 10 years looking at the history of the city. Post-loss in 2003, when did you sit down and say, I need to start writing a new script for my life? I need to veer off course on this highway that I'm on right now? I kind of feel like I've been writing a new script for my life um, every few years. I, I have one long period when I'm in municipal finance from 1976 to 1996. Um, and beyond that, I'm always thinking, well, what's next? I would say uh, the finality of the 03 election, that politics and elected office was not likely going to be a successful pursuit and therefore it needed to be abandoned. By the way, I didn't really abandon it because I flirted with it you again did. in 07. Yes. I flirted with it in 2011. I flirted with it in 2015. <laughs> and 2019 is coming. <laughs> so, and I've always been a bit of a flirt. So, but I, I realized that I needed to think about something different. For a few years, I did venture capital. And I, I worked in private equity and I was investing in, in companies, uh, raised a fund. But um, I decided the pursuit of power and the pursuit of wealth uh, was something I had done uh, in some cases successfully, in some cases obviously power not, but I wanted to pursue something intellectual. So I thought it may be teaching or going on a college campus and realized I had no patience for the political environment of, of the academic life. 
And I constructed an intellectual pursuit of producing documentary films, which has been more than more rewarding than I could possibly have imagined. I learn new things every day. I love learning things. And interpreting them in a way that makes it digestible for people to consume on media, uh, television and, and, and film, is a great way to tell stories. And the combination of visual, verbal, music, sound design, all the cinematics that go into it really create um, a sense of accomplishment. And I think we're constantly getting better. And uh, would I, I wish we had done that when I was a politician. <laughs> I've been involved in politics, politics literally since I'm seven years old. And I think the experiences that, you, that one goes through in a campaign, whether as a candidate or as a staff member, are extraordinarily valuable uh, as maturing you in terms of thinking, reaction, how to deal with stresses and problems, how to compartmentalize things. So I, I think the foundation for however one might characterize my career uh, was really established through the work that I did as a staff member and candidate uh, for public office. You're heading to Detroit. You're doing a documentary on the bankruptcy of Detroit. And I'm wondering if you see any similarities between – because Philadelphia has been through periods where it almost went into bankruptcy, particularly in the 1990s when you first ran for mayor. Do you see any parallels? You know, it's funny. Um, in many ways, the crisis that led to the 1992 establishment of a fiscal oversight board by the state – the implementation of a 1% sales tax, and the financing of about a $265 million deficit through the sale of bonds pales in comparison to the stresses that the current pension crisis that is hidden in plain sight in Philadelphia and in Pennsylvania uh, has imposed on the taxpayers of the city. So we're spending something like $500 million a year to, in effect, treat the unfunded liability of pensions as a mortgage. It's like this huge debt, $5.7 billion, and we pay $500 million a year from the general fund to pay down that, li that, that, that liability. That, that's a massive amount of money in a $4 billion budget. And to me, it explains why Philadelphia can't fund schools, can't lower the wage tax to the level that it should have been lowered. Uh, and can't do a lot of municipal and infrastructure investment because so much cash is going out the door to fund these legacy obligations. You win in 2003. Perhaps you don't do documentaries. Well, So I'm, you're glad you lost. I'm out of office now. Had I won in 2003, <laughs> uh, I would have been out after 2011. I assume I would have been reelected. And now I would have just sort of been in the fifth or sixth year of my documentary film career. <laughs> what would you advise people who say get into the, the middle point of their career and they find that the floor just falls right beneath them and out? They, they get uh, laid off or whatever. Well, I mean, there's a moment after any kind of cathartic experience like that where you just kind of collapse. Give yourself a chance to collapse and pull yourself together and understand that you have to overcome fear. You have to show up. You cannot hide. You can, I mean, listen, all these election losses, the best thing that could have happened for me would have been to hide. I did a little hiding after 2003, but you just have to show up. And then you have to see this as an opportunity. Uh, it is very difficult in this economy to become uh, marginalized through a layoff or through uh, a loss of a, a position or for a failure to get a promotion. Uh, there are a lot of very talented people out there and highly educated, so it's really difficult. 
But the opportunity to reshape yourself, to remake yourself, if you will, uh, is not something that should be feared. It's something that should be embraced. And that's what I would, I would recommend to people. Take your time. Don't rush. But don't allow yourself to be put into a position where you think you've reached the end of the world. It's hard enough to get a job right out of college, but it's even more difficult exponentially to get a job and then say, all right, well, what am I going to do in 20 years when I get laid off? <laughs> well, if you've been in a company or a job for 20 or 30 years and it's the only thing you've ever known and you stepped up through, uh, through seniority or through merit and suddenly you're out, um, what you are really becoming part of is a new economy, that's just, which is the project or the gig economy where people do lots of different things. And I, I would characterize my own experience, even though I'm doing documentaries, each one is a separate project. Each one has a totally different subject, different uh, expertise, different fundraising sources. So the gig economy is what's driving the future of our country. It's a problem. It's a challenge, but it is something that can be embraced. It's whether people are driving Uber uh, for Uber or they're working in retail or they're doing something part-time, Many people today are, are, are having to face the prospect of trying to redefine their business and economic life. It is hard, but it isn't impossible, and it just needs to be something that you bring the best positive and most optimistic outlook to in order to convey that to other people because that's how you will find opportunity. Bottom line, sometimes you just don't know if you can change unless you're forced to change. Whether you're a city or you're a person, I think that's true. When you are faced with the crisis of inaction, the crisis of loss, whether it's, you know, the job or it's the loss of your economy as a community, uh, you are forced to put your mind and focus and give like laser-like attention to what am I going to do next. And it's not to be feared, it's to be embraced. Sam Katz from History Making Productions, thanks so much for joining us on the Travel Mug Podcast. Thank you for having me, guys. It was an honor and a pleasure. And I'll see you on Inside Story. I'll be there. Now to the woman who made the wisdom-filled statement. New chapters are usually unexpected, but unexpectedly rewarding. She is Nancy Karabjanian. As the anchor of the long-running WHYY program, Delaware Tonight, Nancy had her own reset when the public broadcasting service decided to can the show in 2009. Now she is the director for the Center for Political Communication at the University of Delaware, of which I am an advisor. Here is Nancy's reset. But unexpectedly rewarding. Apparently I did say that. <laughs> it says you on the bottom there. Yes, I've had a lot of chapters. <laughs> so it says so much in one sentence. Explain what you mean. Well, when I left the newsroom in 2009, I thought, okay, I'm an adjunct professor, this is my life, summer's at the beach, hanging with my family, and I left my mind open for something that might come up, and it did. Somebody contacted me about this position here at the university, and it's a new chapter for me. It's like my chapter three. I'm now thinking, okay, what's chapter four? I'm a little scared about what's chapter four. But at a time in my life when a lot of my friends are retiring, here I am, you know, back at it. My husband inspired it, too, because he goes, honey, you're not done yet. You have more to do. A little background on you, Nancy. Mm -hmm. You were the longtime anchor of Delaware Today, or Delaware, Delaware Tonight, Tonight, on WHYY mm -hmm. Channel 12. This is the premier news program in the state of Delaware. It actually was one of the very first local newscasts in the entire region. Uh, they started with Polaroid cameras way back when. 
uh, they had video down in the basement of our old studio of every Mercury launch. I mean, they were doing news before there was local news. And I came in 85, I was supposed to be a producer, but the very first day they said, you out on the street. I said, okay. And uh, within a year I was their anchor and news director. So it ended up being a very long 20 plus year run for me, which was great because I had gave birth to three children and was able to craft a really nice life. Doing what you love and in the midst of it, you're probably thinking this is gonna last forever and you're never thinking about the next step. No, but I think that's the thing. You have to be open to it. I never, I never did a resume tape in the entire 20 years I was on the air as anchor. If somebody had said to me, can I see your tape? I would have, oh God. On the last week before they shut down our studio for daily news, I'm like going, I need to find this, I need to find that. I remember I interviewed, you know, this person and that person, where is it? And uh, because it just was not something that I ever did. I, I'm, as a news person, I'm very much in the moment and so when opportunities like, Nancy, would you like to apply to be anchor news director come along, you just have to be open to it. And that's what I think has sort of pushed me through each of my chapters. When they terminated the program, this is 2014? 2009. Okay. 2009. Way back then. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it ends, and are you sort of like, well, i got to pick up the pieces here. i got to figure out what's going on. I'm depressed. What happened? No, I was not. Uh, it was surprising. Uh, it was in it was in July, <laughs> so I had my car loaded and went right down to Ocean City, New Jersey, and had my feet in the sand and realized I didn't have to look for an email as to what the topic was for that week or pay it. I didn't I didn't read a newspaper for a month. Of course, then I, I went into like you know DTS. I had to get back, but because uh, you can take the girl out of the newsroom, but you can't take the newsroom out of the girl. But I was enjoying it. I was enjoying my teaching here. I threw myself in a thousand percent working with my students and uh, just uh, found what the next thing was for me to have, uh, you know, that professional inspiration with. So I think having the teaching kept me in the game a little bit. Okay. So back to Nancy's quote, new chapters are usually unexpected, but unexpectedly rewarding. You set yourself up for the next phase because you had an open mind. Uh, yeah, exactly. I think it's because I just looked at the opportunity. I'm not a just say no person. My first instinct is always to go, okay, what is this? What you know, to look at it almost like a story. I have a rundown from my life. Everything in my life is a rundown. So it was a you know, I look at things as they come up as potentials, as prospects. And if I say no, I say no. But I always say no after I've looked at the opportunity as with an open mind. I don't know if that's good or that's bad. It might mean I'm kind of directionless. <laughs> <laughs> so the Centers for Political Communication was looking for a new uh, director. Mm-hmm. Ralph Begleiter left, and they gave you a call. Yeah, they gave me a call, and it happened rather quickly. Um, and I like this place a lot. I always had. I anchored, uh, I hosted rather, and moderated their debates for them every year. So I knew uh, what Ralph's vision was uh, for the Center for Political Communication. I knew the people who were here because they're part of the communication department where I was an adjunct. And um, I didn't know if I could do it. I remember actually saying, wait a minute, is, I've never had a desk job. Like, can I do this? And uh, Ralph was like, just think of it as a documentary, not a nightly news program, and you'll be fine. Sure. And here you are advice. right now. Yeah. <laughs> Second round of debates. <laughs> so... I think we've reached a stage here in our society where a lot of baby boomers are 
finding themselves looking for work and and they, they've spent all this time you can't spend all your life working for one company anymore it seems you have to be ready for that next step and so I think when you tell someone when they're entering the job market getting that first job better be ready to get fired after 20 years that's that's a lot to ask I think it's less than 20 years um, you know it, probably when you were in school because here right at yeah. the university uh, people went to work for the company meaning DuPont, I think half my graduating class went to work for the company. And now many of them are reinventing themselves after long, very successful careers with the DuPont company. Uh, my, I see it in my kids that they see life as an endless carousel of opportunity, and they're never thinking, I'll be here forever. Uh, they're always, you know, looking for the next change in their life. And that might be good, that might be bad. Yeah, I was just going to ask you, I mean, in, in many ways, it, it's, you're never able to relax. Well, and I have a longevity at one organization that I can look back with such pride. Because I think what we did at WHYY for the state of Delaware was needed, and we did it very well. I think there's this shock when people get to that point where their company, whether it be DuPont or WHYY, transition and you're out there on your own. Luckily for me, I had the teaching and that was something I could hold on to. I'm starting to think about how a lot of people talk about perhaps there's going to be one day where everyone is paid a wage and they don't work because work won't be necessary. Uh, you're looking like, wow, that'd be a fun <laughs> time, right? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think I'd get bored if I didn't have something, don't you think? Wouldn't you get bored? I, I definitely would because I think I still come from a generation where work is very much a part of your identity along with your family. But my father worked for you know, maybe three companies in his time and work was, was it. You know, you worked hard, you worked long hours and then you go home, you have dinner, you get up and you go back to work. To the person who, let's say someone loses their job and it happens and it was unexpected and there is that period of absolute devastation. Mm -hmm. What would you say to someone dealing with that situation? Think back on what you did and how you did it well, and don't think about the end, because the end isn't about you. What is about you is what you were able to contribute during that time that you were in that position, like me hearkening back to the fact that we did a great job for Delaware before they shut down the newscast. Uh, I take great pride in that. I don't see the fact that they canceled it or that DuPont disintegrated in many ways as a reflection of the people who work there. Uh, I see it as just something, you know, these, it is what it is. You know, it's one of those mantras just that just business. gets me through. Well, business is personal. You can't always just say just business because it does affect lives, but it is what it is. So, and the beauty of being somebody coming out of a 20 year stretch at something is when I was in discussions for this position, I was a totally different person than I would have been 20 years earlier. I had this, you know, many train cars full of experience that I was able to bring here, and I knew it. And there was this wonderful sense of confidence that a 25-year-old Nancy would never have had, or a Nancy who had worked two years here, two years there, two years here. I had this wealth of experience that I could bring here, and I, I kind of like tapped into that. So remember what you have and 
focus on that and know that there's a value in institutional memory. There is a value in experience. You, we have to remember how important that is. There's not going to be change if, you know, not going to be progress if we're always looking to the newbies. Sometimes when it works out, that second act can be more challenging than you expected. And sometimes looking back, that first act wasn't as challenging as, as it should have been towards the end. Am I getting at something there? Well, one of the reasons that when in 2006 I went to WHYY and said, I need to stop doing this, was because it was becoming very routine. Uh, if I had to do one more interview on some of these topics, I think I was going to scream. And I had gone to an all-state soccer game and to watch my son, who was a senior in high school, and all these people knew, oh, there's JJ. I'm like, who are these strangers that know my kid? And I realized I was the stranger in the stands. And that was really a push. 9-11 and that moment said to me, I need to be focusing on the other half of my life now. now I tell you what, one thing. I'm not ready for change. <laughs> <laughs> Nor is the I, Philadelphia I community ready for you not. to change. I'm still a morning person. <laughs> Nancy, it was great talking to you on the Travel Mug podcast here. Good talking to you. No regrets. No regrets ever. Thanks, Nancy. That was easy. That's the Travel Mug. Over and out.